Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, I would bet virtually everyone who's going to listen to this podcast is has heard of the Pew Charitable Trust. I would agree with that. I think I hear it every night when I'm watching, uh, you know, PBS. I believe they're a sponsor, but uh, an incredible organization that's been around since 1948. And today we're going to learn about what the Pew Charitable Trust is doing in the realm of ocean and coastal conservation initiatives. They have a great program, incredible portfolio of issues that they tackle and support and work on. And we've got some really great guests to introduce us to Pew and the ocean and coastal uh, universe of Pew. Uh, we're going to be joined today by Stacy Baez, and she is an officer in the Coastal Wetlands and Coral Reefs Project at the Pew Charitable Trust, a scientist and expert on coastal ecology and habitat. Also joining us is Courtney Durham, and she is a policy expert, a graduate of the Yale School of the Environment, a place I am very fond of. Um, and she is with the she's an officer with the International Conservation Unit and a policy expert. So we're going to get a chance to learn about Pew from two professionals that I'm looking forward to. I think I think our listeners can see where we're going from a mile away, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to do a two step. Yeah, a two step. We're going to learn about the science, paint the picture of what's going on out there, what Pew is working on from a research and science perspective, and then we're going to learn about what the policy. Uh, advocacy and work that Pew is doing uh, around the world. Yeah, This is a, a global effort, and uh, I'm looking forward to learning more. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, uh, Stacy Baez, thank you very much for joining us. Courtney Durham, thank you very much for taking time to be on the American Shoreline podcast. It's a real privilege for us to have, have you on as guests. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thrilled to be here. Well, you know, as, as I... Uh, like to say with our programs what we really like to do to start these things off is to introduce you to our audience so they know who they are listening to and if you uh, would be so kind Stacy could you introduce uh, yourself to our audience uh, what your background is and how you came to work at Pew okay so I'm an oceanographer and I started off my career researching juveniles spotted sea trout on seagrass beds in Chesapeake Bay. And uh, during this research, I, I fell in love with seagrass habitat. So I'm originally from the Caribbean, and I actually had never seen a seagrass meadow before this time. And there's just something so magical about them. 
And at that time, we knew how important they were for coastal communities, specifically towards supporting healthy fisheries. I actually started my research career in fisheries um, and then decided to shift focus to seagrass. Um, you know, seagrasses are so important uh, for fish health. 20% um, of the world's largest fisheries depend on seagrass habitats. So if you're eating fish, there's a good probability that that fish spent some time on a seagrass meadow. Um, so I eventually moved away from academic research into um, the nonprofit conservation space, and I worked on global shark conservation. I helped establish shark sanctuaries in the Pacific and in the Caribbean. I also helped establish large-scale marine protected areas. And now fast forward a few years, I am back full circle to coastal ecosystems, working for Pew, where I manage the research portfolio for the Coastal Wetland and Coral Reefs project. And for those of you who may not know the term coastal wetlands, these are mangroves, seagrass and salt marshes. Um, and since my days as a researcher, the scientific understanding of coastal habitats have grown tr tremendously. Specifically, we know more about their efficiency in sequestering carbon and helping communities adapt to climate change. Um, and commonly, you will hear these ecosystems referred to as blue carbon ecosystems. And so our project supports countries interested in protecting these coastal wetlands um, as part of their action in building resilience to climate change. Man, that sounds so cool. And I am really... It does sound like a great I'm, job. This is going to be... I can just already tell her it's going to be a great show. Uh, but Stacy, before before we get into this, this substance, I got to ask, yeah. you know, what was... You know, you started with fisheries. Your interest was in fish. Fish come from the seagrass meadow. Okay, I get that connection. But, but what is your initial... Uh, connection with the coastal ecosystem where you you, you mentioned you're from the Caribbean what what's your what's your initial uh, uh, connection there mm -hmm. that's a good question I mean so although I'm from Trinidad we have beautiful beaches I actually didn't spend much time at the beach um, mm. <laughs> which is and also I didn't know how to swim Wow so you know, it's just counterintuitive that islanders have this very strong connection to the ocean. I didn't. Um, I came to the U.S. to to be a medical doctor and, and then wandered off into the ocean. Well, but can, can you can you explain <laughs> how you wandered off? What happened? What was the inspiration so, for yeah, that? What, what caused you to wander away from medicine and yeah, go into I, fishery science? I mean, surely there's some interesting it's, moment. Um, I, in my... First year in college, um, I got an internship with the EPA. And I did the internship um, because it was something to do during the, the summertime. And we flew around in a helicopter collecting water samples from New York all the way down to Delaware on some days. And wow. New York at the time was going through this drought. And so coastal environment was just this pristine like Caribbean blue um, there was no runoff and I saw a school of rays that must have been like a thousand rays and that was it like I I, wow. I, I couldn't go back to doing pre-med after that well you know I can't tell you how many people that we've had on the podcast over the last couple of years and 
who talk about that kind of inspirational experience of the ocean and and connecting to it on a very emotional and visceral level it is an inspiring space uh, Courtney uh, you're uh, formerly I think a graduate of the Yale School uh, of the environment. Tell us about your background and how you came to Pew. Certainly. So I'm, I'm Courtney Durham. Uh, I am what I would call an unabashed policy wonk, right? I've been, I've been working on, on global climate policy for the better part of my career. Um, starting out in my career, I was, I was actually focused on, on global governance issues writ large. And I, and I rather quickly made the realization that climate change was all-encompassing of all the issues that I cared about most, right? It was um, multilateralism, it was poverty eradication, it was supporting women and children, trade, the list it just goes on. Um, there were so many linkages across subject areas, uh, and, I, and I just was fascinated. Um, and so I really started to understand that, that a global challenge like climate change um, was one that was going to require the kind of strategic thinking, transformative innovation, um, things that I found uh, exciting personally. Um, the, a global challenge like climate change, of course, necessitates a global solution because, uh, you know, those emissions don't stay within the lines on maps that we draw or the impacts aren't isolated to those who generated them even. Um, so really the fate of our entire planetary system, all the things that we care about um, are, is dependent on the action or inaction of our human society today. So, so really it was from that, that, that angle of, of being a, love, a lover of, of multilateralism and collective action, frankly, that um, I really uh, took to working on climate and conservation issues. And it's, it's been a real passion of mine and work that I feel um, lucky to be doing, frankly. I, I, you know, the focus now is on helping policymakers think through actions uh, they could be taking to safeguard societies, nature, our common uh, living planet. Um, and there really is a whole menu of climate and, and conservation policy options, so to speak, to, for, for countries and, and, and policymakers to consider options that, that keep healthy economies and societies at the forefront. But what's really important for us to remember is that for those things, you really need to have a healthy environment um, underpinning all of that. And, and very usefully, and what's exciting about this work is, is that coastal wetlands can be a part of that equation. Um, I, I, I grew up not far from the Chesapeake Bay where I would go crabbing with my father in, in those salt marshes, spent many of my, my formative years hunting for sand dollars amongst the mangroves of, of South Florida, more recently worked in the South Pacific and spent every waking moment that I could um, snorkeling in the seagrasses off of, of Fiji's coast. So it, it's wow. fascinating to me at a, at a very intimate level. Um, and it's just been a, a, real, a real treasure to be able to take something so personally motivating and, and um, be able to work on it uh, as a career. I think we're in good hands, Peter. I think I, do we're gonna, too. I think this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I do too. And Courtney, I like the emphasis on the on the multilateral transactions that are necessary to effectively respond to something like climate change or to conserve ocean and coastal resources. Uh, that's the complexity 
uh, of these issues. And Tyler and I like to think of climate change, we talk about it as being a people problem, not a science problem, because fundamentally, we have to figure out how to coordinate and work together across an incredible spectrum of interests to do this well. Can you talk a little bit about that? that multilateral approach and the, and the skill set that goes into effectively bringing people to a different maybe understanding or action mm-hmm. when it comes to climate change. So I would say that I, I think that um, there's a recognition growing now that the cost of inaction is far, far too high. Uh, it, it's, it's much greater than the cost of action. And we know that time uh, there is an, a, a serious layer of urgency. Uh, time is of the essence in effectively addressing the climate crisis. And you're right. I, I, I think in many ways the science is there. Even in in some some cases, the the tech advancements are there. What what really is uh, needed is is frankly the political will. And um, I I would you know I would encourage us to take a, a walk down memory lane um, to 2015 and the Paris Agreement, which is really where things began to change, right? It was after decades of hard, hard work from the global environmental movement, frankly, um, that negotiations were finally gaveled, right? I was in the room when when the final gavel came down and the crowd of negotiators and civil society cheered out, and it is still so crisp in my mind because it was such a significant agreement. It was where that political will really rose to the occasion. Um, And it was a truly incredible achievement. It's a historic agreement because it's the first international agreement to unite every nation, not just some, every nation around their responsibilities to take action on climate. It was also a unanimous agreement, right? One of the, the first international agreement of any kind to have that many signatories approve that quickly uh, with consensus. And, 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 you know, the overall goal of the Paris Agreement really is to make sure that global temperature does not exceed two degrees Celsius, hopefully not not even 1.5 degrees Celsius. Today we're at 0.8 degrees Celsius, um, give or take. So the, the clock is ticking. Uh, there are serious changes that we need to be making, but but I feel encouraged that we finally have um, a place for, for policy action and a place where political will um, really is being stewarded uh, by, a, by a lot of countries. And, and, and frankly, you know, the, the, the value of coastal wetlands in uh, a suite of other policy options is also growing in, in prominence as policymakers are thinking about, you know, what, what kind of action should I be prioritizing to help address climate change? I'm excited to learn more of that, but I'd like to learn a little bit about the science of coastal wetlands, you know, thinking globally now. Uh, Stacy, would you talk a little bit about the, first of all, what what coastal wetlands are? You op- In your opening, you kind of d- gave an overview, but let's get, let's talk about this globally and uh, why they are, of course, so important uh, around the globe that they be protected and conserved. Okay, so that's a big that's a big question. It is. Uh, coast, coastal wetlands fringe uh, most of our shores worldwide, um, with the exception of the Antarctic. So they are mangroves, seagrass, and salt marshes. So some are found in the tropics. These are typically mangroves. Salt marshes are found um, towards the temperate uh, regions. And then seagrasses are pretty much everywhere except the Antarctic. So depending on where you are, um, you could have a mix of two or one 
um, of these ecosystems. And the intersection of coastal wetlands and climate is a very dynamic research space. It wasn't until about 10, 15 years ago that scientists started looking at the capacity of these ecosystems to sequester carbon. Previously, um, the bulk of scientific inquiry into carbon sequestration um, was centered around forests, terrestrial forests, and which makes sense. You know, we think about the forest drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, you know, into, into their trunks and leaves and into the soil. Um, and there's so much research now across mangroves, seagrasses, and salt marshes. And these research findings sort of fall into a couple of different buckets. So the first is biodiversity. Uh, coastal wetlands are highly productive. They create habitat that would not exist um, otherwise for numerous species. Just think of any mangrove forest and you could, you know, just imagine the diversity of species found there. I mean, it's a forest. And, you know, I yeah. use that term forest. It's, it's really akin to a forest. And... Um, yeah, they're they're just uh, you know forests that exist on on shorelines. In fact, they um, they live where other trees would would find um, toxic. They live in this um, inundated area with low oxygen in the soil. Like most trees can't live there, and mangroves have adapted to that coastal environment. Um, mm -hmm. And they create their roots or habitat for numerous species. You know, lemon sharks, turtles. I mean, it's just a very vibrant. Um, ecosystem and same for seagrasses and, and salt marsh. Can the I? Next, mm -hmm. I'm, 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 I don't. I, I don't want to cut you off uh, mid mid thought. So so finish finish uh, what you were saying there. No no no. You can feel free to cut me off. <laughs> well, I, I just when I think of um, the coastline, I think of you know the land water edge, and when we're talking about these habitats. Um, in in the past let's see we're talking about marsh we're talking about uh mangroves and we're talking about uh seagrasses right and when i when we when we talk about those things to, you know of course there's this carbon component and habitat component um but there's also been this like uh, uh storm resiliency component that we've talked a lot about on um this uh network and what Hearing you talk about this, Stacy, from the scientific perspective and also from the global perspective, I confess I don't, I haven't really thought about these, these wetland, these these areas from the global perspective. But it's striking to think about how this is. These are areas where water and and land, the it, it's the interface, and it's changing all the time there. And I'm just wondering if, you know. If, if, if you would describe that a little bit and why that dynamic relationship between where the water is in, in reference to the land is important. Mm. Yeah, I mean, coastal environments are just necessarily dynamic environments. They experience changes, um, not just from the ocean, but from on land, coastal development. Um, in fact, our coastal wetlands are among the most threatened ecosystems on the planet we've lost um, something like 50% of our mangroves and, you know, seagrasses. We only started monitoring our seagrass habitats in the late 1800s. And since then, it's estimated that 30% of it has been lost. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a super dynamic environment uh, because 200 million people live close to a, a coastline. And, and so it's just that balance 
between, you know, having intact ecosystems and having, you know, management that not only supports the protection of ecosystem, but also supports people. So it's just that um, type of balance. And you actually touched on the second bucket that I was going to raise, which was Good. helping um, communities to adapt to climate change, because you mentioned uh, shoreline protection. Right. And, you know, mangroves alone provide 65 billion US dollars in global flood protection benefits. So when you lose mangroves, you lose that that flood protection and it will cost the economy, you know, billions um, to to show up that green infrastructure that was lost. It's definitely a, a significant contributor to shoreline stability uh, in the areas fortunate in uh, fortunate enough in the United States to have mangroves, as we do here in Texas in the south southern part of the state, and uh, over, of course, in Florida. Uh, I'm curious uh, for both of you. Uh, I'm I'm curious about why Pew. Um, Stacy, you're a, a PhD expert scientist. When I think about where those where that career path leads uh pew charitable trust would not come to mind for me and courtney as a, a policy expert i kind of wonder if you could explain a little bit about the pew charitable trust what this organization does um i've always thought of it as a big granting organization uh, but in fact there's substance to these programs here could you explain that uh courtney maybe starting with you what is it about Pew? What does it do? And how do you fit into that universe of action? Of course. Uh, so, so Pew, what, what's really attractive to me about, about Pew is a few things, right? One, it's the, the commitment to, to science-based decision-making, communicating fact-based um, bipartisan policies and research to benefit society, nature, uh, this this shared planet that 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 we all are on, and I think another really useful um, role that Pew has been playing, not just in generating that new science or or policy recommendations, but also being um, kind of a neutral arbiter, being willing to to be a convening power, to get stakeholders in a room to understand shared challenges, to work towards shared benefits, um, and really in a way that helps uh, promote a healthy uh, and 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 functioning um, planet that is inclusive of of um, humans at just as much as nature. It sounds a little like EDF, I have to say. Yeah, there is some yeah, uh, similarity a, there. I think, uh, Stacy, what what is it about Pew that that is important to you professionally and personally? Why did you end up there? Uh, what's the portfolio? that you handle? So, you know, as Courtney mentioned, um, Pew is driven by um, science. And so the organization and across all our our projects um, and the organization has had 30 years of, of marine conservation work, uh, fisheries, marine protected areas, now coastal wetlands, um, is the transfer of scientific information towards the policy making process. And for me as a scientist, I see myself as, you know, I'm standing on a bridge, I'm taking 
you know, hard data or hard research and packaging it in a way that's accessible to a policymaker. Mm. And I think Pew does that really efficiently, um, that flow of scientific data that feeds into the policy, dis- that decision-making process. Huh. That's really interesting. And Courtney, it must be, help me understand this, because I don't really know how this works uh, from the perspective of the Pew Charitable Trust. You're engaging with decision makers, policy makers around the world, both on a, and on a scientific level and also on a policy level. Tell us about the work that you actually do. What does that mean? What is a project that you're engaged in? How do you do it? Um, and I have to say, I'm curious about this because I've, I had the impression that Pew writes checks for grants and things, and that's what you guys do. And that's clearly a misunderstanding of Pew. So help us understand an actual in, initiative or project and how it works. Sure. So I think because coastal wetlands themselves, we have just laid out, have, have so, so, so many values for so many people, it really has turned out to be a sweet spot for policymakers. Um, if you're thinking like a policymaker, right, who's who's trying to address climate change, there's a few things that is that are going to be attractive about coastal wetlands and taking action in that way, right? It's it's easily deployable. They exist now, and and we want to keep them in existence. Um, protecting and restoring coastal wetlands can be relatively low cost when when thinking about other abatements or sectors. And as we discussed, they really benefit local communities in terms of you know, physical safety, generation of economic value and, and, and livelihoods, um, healthy food webs, uh, protecting infrastructure assets along the shore. There's just so much they have going for them. So what, what Pew realizes is that not only do they have um, a, a serious conservation value, they have a, a, a significant policy window, right? And so you're a policymaker or other invested stakeholder who recognize not only what is valuable about those places, but now you're thinking about how you should go about developing and implementing policies uh, to protect or restore those places. And that's where this project has, has really um, been incepted, right? So it's all about using the Paris Agreement as um, the, the policy vehicle to get the protection and restoration um, activities uh, in in several several countries across the world. So, the Paris Agreement is different in that it's it's a bottom up approach. Um, what that means is that every nation gets to decide what actions they will take to tackle climate change, and and these are done through things called nationally determined contributions or NDCs. Huh. Basically, they are a country's domestic actions that they submit to the UN as their their contribution to tackling the broader issue of climate change based on their respective context, capacities, capabilities. Got it. And the, the hope is that then when we when we aggregate all of these varied actions from country to country to reduce their emissions, adapt to climate impacts, build resilience for the future, right? The hope is that together we will be able on aggregate to averse avert the worst of the climate crisis and very importantly these plans are required to be updated every five years and be more progressive than the previous five years so again policymakers right now are thinking through where they need to be prioritizing actions and delivering on it so our work at pew is really about supporting countries and policymakers who have coastal wetlands to include them in their climate plans under the paris agreement okay let me Remind me again what an NDC is. 
That's an, a nationally determined contribution. Nationally. An easier way to think about okay. it outside of the wonk is just a, a, what a country intends to do to combat climate change uh, domestically. Okay. I just want to I just want to make like one it. thing very clear, and that is we are very pro wonk. Yes, <laughs> we, we, we will continue to call them NDC henceforth. It. it makes sense. Uh, it, w- what you just explained uh, helped me a lot understand what you're doing. It seems to me, first of all, I must say that being in the room when the Paris uh, Climate Accord was uh, uh, ratified, ratified must have been an extraordinary uh, moment. It's a historical moment, uh, but must have been an incredible experience. And it seems like the work you're doing here is really in that implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement, and in particular, the development and supporting, I guess, countries and communities to develop these NDCs, these national determined contributions to, uh, I guess, carbon uh, emission reduction. Is that the sphere that you're operating in, is in that interface, that implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement? Is that what you're trying to, is that what you guys are working on? Yeah, so insofar as part of implementing Paris is updating your NDCs every five years. So so it's a significant effort that yeah. countries need to go through understanding how far they came to, to, to meeting their previous NDC, the, the, be them emissions reduction targets, be them other targets about building adaptation or resiliency values okay. in their country. So what we're doing is helping countries to think about how can they improve their NDCs for the next five years? Because that is a facet of NDCs, is making them better than the previous. And for many countries, they may have just previously recognized the potential value of coastal wetlands. And for us, it's really about helping to to generate the science, um, support policymakers in, in, in plotting out how policy levers could be pulled um, to include specificity, concrete roadmaps for um, action around coastal wetlands, rather than we think these are important um, climate values and and um, useful ecosystems to, we know they are important because of X, Y, Z. That is very cool. And uh, let me let me just ask this. So how do you go about, the, so you, you said like, do you have a list? I imagine that in your office, you have a list of countries that have the most uh, like non-protected wetland wetlands, and I would put those at the top. Of, is that the way you approach it? Are the are the countries with the with the most at stake at the very top of your list? How do you triage this global problem? So for us, in, in this stage of our project, what we were really trying to do was develop a model, and so we identified a range of countries that could be representative of all different types of contexts and capacities and um, political will, capabilities, et cetera. So, That's more um, complicated than just how much you got. It is, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, I, I wish it were that easy, but, it, it, but it's, it's not. And um, for us, it, it, the process is important. It, it's not just Pew. It, it's Pew working in partnership with governments, with researchers, universities, other NGOs on the ground to support the updating of climate plans in a way that that isn't fly in, fly out, that that really is focused on building capacity for the long haul, because uh, it's about updating these climate plans in the future and and being able to deliver on on, um, commitments, frankly. And can I, Peter, sorry, but I just am curious how how Stacy it, who comes first, Stacy or Courtney, in this thing? Like, 
Um, Stacy, do you do you go to Courtney and say, hey, you know, I think we ought to really check out Costa Rica. Uh, they got some great seagrasses and I love seagrasses and we should really protect those. Or Courtney, do you say, hey, I'm, I've run this. I've run my global model and due to the, you know, I don't know, thousand different variables that I've tracked. Uh, these countries are important. Let's study their wetlands. Let's direct some science there. How, how do you how does that work? It's not a linear process. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> it's more like a matrix. Um, so we have um, a bunch of parameters that go into where we work and how we work. And each place is unique because each place has a different set of scientific uh, capabilities, um, a different set of policies. Um, and, and just the research institutions are, are different. So I'm just speaking on the on the on the science side. So for example, and maybe to make it a little less abstract, one of our projects well, is to, to support um, seagrass protections. And so we're working in Seychelles. And in Seychelles, there isn't um, a, a validated seagrass map. So you don't know exactly how much seagrass you have, where the seagrasses are located, um, and in, in addition, you don't know how much carbon is stored in those seagrass beds. And so, and, and that's a problem, maybe not as strong in the US because the US has, you know, mapped seagrasses extensively. There's a lot of research that goes into carbon sequestration, but elsewhere globally, we actually lack a seagrass map that's been validated. So the work in, in Seychelles is to map seagrasses and then a local team led by U the University of Seychelles will take seagrass soil cores. And so at the end of the project, uh, we will know where seagrass is, their, their extent and distribution, along with the carbon stored. And that information will flow to the government. And, and would help drive the development of these national, uh, uh, these NDCs, this nationally determined contribution, right? This kind of flows into the analysis of what the Seychelles can do to contribute to implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement. Is Am I connecting the dots correctly or is that off base? No, no, that's on track. It, it goes towards um, policy, climate policy. So uh, it sounds like Pew has a, uh, a a great deal to offer, both in terms of scientific and technical expertise. And Courtney, you've been talking about policy options in the toolbox and the development of policy in response to climate change. Um, so as an organization, uh, I'm interested in the collaboration. Could, Courtney, could you take us inside of a room? Who are you meeting with? Would it, you mentioned stakeholders, other NGOs, government officials. What does it look like when you're doing the work in a particular project? How are you engaged and who are you engaging with? Of course. So I, I, I think we've been very intentional in this process of, of making sure that it was multi-stakeholder and that it was um, seen to be collective and, and collaborative. So an example, I would say, of, a, of a, a room, so to speak, that we're in, they're all virtual these days, um, but a Zoom room that we've been in lately is, is around um, Belize's Blue Carbon Working Group. So this is Pew in partnership with um, our partners on the ground coming together from, from the National Climate Change Office in the country, from the University of Belize, um, from 
from a, a various different science backgrounds, coastal zone management folks. It, it's really because of the interstitial nature of the ecosystem, it really is a, a pretty broad group. And, and the idea is that we drive towards consensus. What are the concerns or um, policy options from each point of view? And, and how can we work together towards proposed um, targets or proposed policies that the government can be submitting through their NDC in a way that is as seen as as holistic as possible. Um, the, the, the real, the, the, the implementation of these actions and policies has to be built upon uh, that sort of collective consensus if it is to be successful. So we're really, really cognizant of making sure that this is um, a more sustainable uh, and intentional thought process rather than, you know, this is a recommendation from outside of the country that you should be considering in your, in your next update. So it, it is very, very distinctly about putting in the work with institutional arrangements, getting people connected, um, sharing data and intel, um, working to build capacity around technical um, issues, et cetera. So it, it is as multi-stakeholder, frankly, as it can get. Courtney, how are we doing? Um, you know, I know that too. I'm curious to know, yeah, because it, it strikes me that these coastal wetlands, as you say, they already exist. We don't have to build them. Uh, this is a good NDC. If I was a country in the Paris Climate Accords and had uh, I possessed coastal wetlands, I'd be protecting those those guys and claiming credit on an NDC with you. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I, I have a two part. How are we doing? And and to what extent are is this an opening a, a way to open the door? for further uh, NDCs that are maybe more uh, ambitious and, and harder? So we're doing better. That, that is the good news. Um, like I said, in the initial round of NDCs since 2015, that first five-year batch, there was, a, there was a good chunk of countries that recognized the importance of coastal ecosystems, of the ocean more generally. Um, but again, it, it lacked the specificity that, that one might want in terms of really being able to, to make concrete policies and actions to protect them or restore them. Um, but I, I think a, a really good example of the latest update, which, which countries are running through right now for the next five or 10 year cycle, um, is Costa Rica. So they have very uh, recently wrapped up their, their NDC process at the end of 2020, submitted it to, to the Paris Agreement, um, and it was a really wonderful example of how coastal wetlands can feature in a country's NDC. It was built, again, on a multi-stakeholder process. It is, have some serious, ambitious um, targets therein, and again, was, was very inclusive in that it was building on, when we think of Costa Rica, they're like the bastion of of climate action and uh, conservation work, really. Uh, and it builds on all of the work they had been doing terrestrially with conservation and restoration work um, of their forests, but they have now expanded it to include um, coastal wetlands, mostly mangroves in their case. And for them, that practically, that meant protecting 100% of the coastal wetlands in their, their wetland inventory. So that's like 22,000 hectares of mangroves. That meant um, restoring a, a suite of priority coastal wetland areas by 2025. Um, thinking about uh, utilizing community stewardship of mangrove areas, right? 
to, to ensure effective management or, or monitoring plans um, in the years to come. So it was it was really, really good to see. And our expectation is that other countries are, are, are seeing the light and, and have hmm. realized that there is a, a, a role that, that nature, that coastal wetlands can be playing alongside other economy-wide emissions reductions. Um, but there is a, it is a, a worthy inclusion in an NDC. And I, and I would say to, to keep your eyes posted on, on a few more to come that will have that layer of, of specificity and commitment from countries in a robust and ambitious manner. Can, can you name it, you know, who, who are you impressed by uh, in addition to Costa Rica in taking seriously the NDC development process and really coming up with concrete and tangible uh, well-grounded, stakeholder-invested strategies. Who's who jumps out around the world uh, from your perspective? I've got to say, I've I've got to harken back to Belize and Seychelles on this one. We've been we've been watching this process unfolding in the past year, and it it has been one that is built upon significant political will, mm-hmm. but also a recognition that um, they need to be. Um, actionable and they need to be achievable. It's not just going to be um, something put on paper, but rather a a, a real movement towards the protection and restoration of of coastal wetlands. So when I think of it, the, the stars in my mind are the Costa Rica, Belize, Seychelles. And I would, I would also add on the, on the research side, the seagrass mapping work in Seychelles can be a model for many other countries to follow. By the end of, of that project, they will have had a field-validated seagrass map for the entire EEZ, which is huge, and also know how much carbon they have stored in those seagrass ecosystems. And that has huge implications, not just for scientific under, advancing scientific knowledge, but also advancing policy. Totally. It's like you're inventing a process to know how to do it, to get the information and yeah. and know how to do the science. And that can be replicated elsewhere. And I think that's just so important that you have these first examples, even even if there's some failure along the way. I think we have to be willing to do that. Um, Stacy, what what you mentioned that that wetland science is kind of an emergent um, space Uh I'm curious to know what excites you about kind of the scientific frontier. Um, what new research is out there um, that would really just blow the minds of our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. So wetland science has been around for a, quite a long time, but the carbon aspect of it is relatively new. And, and, and you know, we, we hear the term blue carbon ecosystems. Um, you know, that's relatively new. That only came on the scene maybe 10, 10 years ago. And so, um, you know, scientists have known for a long time how important wetlands are for fisheries and, and livelihoods, etc. But now um, new research shows how powerful they are as carbon sinks. So they sequester five times more carbon per unit area as forests. Wow. And you know, that's massive. They contain these huge carbon stores in their underlying soil. And just to put it into perspective, coastal wetlands are responsible for an estimated 50% of all the carbon buried in marine sediments. So think about the size of the ocean and all the carbon and in the coastal wetlands, 
the marine sediments there hold half of the carbon sequestered. Wow. Holy moly. That's extraordinary. And, I, I, you know, that kind of information and understanding is is so important. And I got to say, it, it, it elevates my appreciation of the work to restore and protect wetlands in along the American shoreline. There is a tremendous reason to do this from a climate perspective, that 50% of the ocean uh, carbon trapping is in coastal wetlands is something I'd never heard, but that's an extraordinary number. It's extraordinary, and it's not just their capacity to draw carbon down, but if these ecosystems are lost or degraded, that carbon that's stored in those soils is remobilized, and now the ecosystem turns into an emitter, the carbon dioxide goes back into the atmosphere, along with two other powerful greenhouse gases, methane and nitrous oxide. So it's equally important to keep these um, ecosystems healthy and intact. Wow. And I just add, as Stacy's saying, uh, from a policymaker's point of view, you want to make sure that you have as many carbon sinks, greenhouse gas sinks in place, and that they don't transform into sources when you're really thinking about how much hard work needs to go into abating emissions in the future. You don't want to make it any harder on yourself. And keeping those ecosystems intact is going to help retain that that greenhouse gas source uh, versus sink function. Well, you know, I've got to say I'm I'm encouraged in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, I was not aware that the Paris Climate Accords implementation process was as robust as it sounds. Uh, we're in round two, it sounds like, of the NDC process, the first five years, the 2015 to 2020 plans. So I guess we're in the first round of updates. Mm-hmm. So there's actual real-world work going on. So when people think about the Paris Climate Agreement and think of it as some pie-in-the-sky thing that says we're going to stop doing certain things, the reality is this agreement has fostered a tremendous network of investment and investigation and action, is what it sounds like. Is that a fair conclusion? Are we moving forward? Totally fair conclusion. And I, I think w- one of the benefits of having that cycle, A, is that you can encourage action that is able to meet the need, the urgency that we know. It's not a a 25-year plan that we update way down the line. It is a relatively short-lived plan. Um, So it leaves a lot of room for progression. And I think very importantly, as Stacey is mentioning, the science is developing quickly. The costs of a lot of um, tech uh, innovation is just plummeting. And so being able to revise assumptions or strategies in a, a shorter term timeline it is really meant to to recognize those those realities that the the climate science is is constantly evolving and improving that um the political will is too that administrations come and go um i i, I definitely see it as a as a, pro, a progress um forward and and the fact that ndcs are this continual five-year moment and not just a five-year moment but one that is dedicated to building beyond what you did the previous five years, I think yeah. is a, what really sets it apart. I, 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 I can't help but ask this question, and we haven't talked about the United States's role and participation in the Paris Climate Agreement. Obviously, the previous administration, I think well-known, withdrew the United States from the agreement. The new Biden administration has announced and I believe uh, reconnected us to the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, Can you, Courtney, can you comment on what you're seeing 
in terms of the role of the United States is uh, in the Paris Climate Agreement implementation. What are you beginning to see and what do you expect to see from the Biden administration over the next couple of years? So what I can say is that their NDC is being um, revised and that I'm excited to see what they come with. It, it's meant to be released on Earth Day and, and that uh, listeners and yourselves should look forward to that moment mm. to get a little bit more of a sense about um, what the U.S. is, is going to be doing. I, I, of course, would love to see coastal wetlands um, included, but to the extent that the, they are revising, um, the, the most I know is that it, we should expect it around Earth Day. Okay. Who who leads the effort to develop the United States NDC plan? It, what is it a government agency? Is it like interior? State is Department? It, is it EPA? Who's, who's doing the work? It's a treaty, yeah, isn't it? It, w- yeah. it would be EPA and then state e- okay. is kind of the team that, that uh, is the negotiators uh, and socializing that abroad. But um, Okay. And we, we got a new EPA administrator uh, confirmed by the Senate this week uh, from the state of North Carolina, uh, coastal guy. Um, do you have confidence or do you know enough at this point to say whether the leadership that we have dedicated to the NDC process in the United States is uh, something that uh, you have confidence in? Is it, I hate to, you know, I hope that's not too political a question, but... What I can say is that I'm excited to see what they come with. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that answer. It's very new. They've been in office 50 days. It's hard to know at this sure. stage. But I think there's reason to be, to be optimistic. I mean, I think that the United States' participation in the Paris, Paris Climate Agreement at this point and the, uh, re-engaging in the process has got to be considered uh, a positive for people who give, give a damn about this issue. I, I would agree, and I'll just jump in and say, man, how foundational Paris has been in hearing about these these wetlands conservation efforts around the globe. And uh, Courtney, you, you opened uh, talking about how these challenges are intersectional and kind of in, intertwine with basically every other social issue. The environment is our environment. It's mm-hmm. it's social, it is it's the setting. Justice. It's the setting of our whole, you know, if, of all the theater of life. And yeah. and so, um, it, it with now that we have this new this this Paris thing and we're deep into it, um, is is are you optimistic as well? I mean, are, are we, yeah. are we, you, you work on this every day and, and yeah, I want to uh, know that Courtney, I'll start with you and then I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Stacy's thoughts, but for people who work on this stuff, we're always interested. I mean, how are you, are we yeah. feeling good? Are we, uh, are you optimistic? Can we effectively respond to this? What's your, what's your, what's your gut feel? What's in your heart about that? In my heart, I really am. I really am optimistic. I, really? I have Great. seen action on the ground. I have seen through um, the the commitment stage to the implementation stage, and I, and I just know that there is a lot of um, concerted effort to to tackle climate change in a way that that is uh, holistic and and collective. And it, it is something that brings inspiration to me on a, on a daily basis. And, and I'm so motivated to make sure that those precious places, especially coastal wetlands and the communities therein are, are safeguarded for future generations. And I, and I really just, um, have seen that, uh, play out time and time again. Wow. I'm glad to hear that. Um, 
let's see. At what, Stacy, from your standpoint, um, how was how optimistic are you about the effectiveness of the of the strategies that we're dealing with on climate change? Can can the human community get a handle on this problem? I mean, there is urgency, but I'm also hopeful. Um, I think the knowledge gap between science and, and policy is narrowing. I see more in the way of countries recognizing the value of nature-based solutions to climate change. Um, coastal ecosystems are inherently difficult places to manage, but there's a wealth of scientific information available now for stakeholders to explore. There's carbon atlases, there's mangrove mapping. I mean, it's just so great to see the abundance of um, research that's public um, for anyone to look at. And I hope to see a greater integration of coastal ecosystems um, and protection of, of these ecosystems as part of climate policies. Hmm. Um, I'm curious, uh, Courtney, how long, um, uh, how long have you been with Pew or working on climate issues? So working on climate issues over eight years at, at Pew for, for the last two. Okay. I'm, I wonder if, it, have you noticed a change uh, in the public discourse, the stakeholder engagement on this issue? Uh, do you still encounter the it's not a real thing mentality or has the conversation advanced? What can you tell us about the communities that you're engaged with? Has the, have, has the understanding sunk in, I guess is what I'm asking. I do think it's permeated. Uh, you know, I got my start before the Paris Agreement was um, a reality, and the conversation was a bit different back then. Wondering if if governments would take action, wondering if it was um, going to be as representative of all stakeholders as it should be. Um, and I tell you, when when Paris became a thing, um, and was adopted in the fashion that it was so quickly and so unanimously things seemed to change. The, the, there, there was a, a big exhale and then there was a, be, a, a huge recommitment to, to getting to work. Mm. Um, and I, I think that the, the global community recognized, like I said at the beginning, that the cost of inaction is just far too high. Right. We can talk about it from a variety of, of points of view and, and that's actually useful, right? We, we can talk about the ecological or conservation value of these places if you want to think about biodiversity. We can talk about the economic value of these places if we want to think about um, national security or stranded assets potentially on the coast, um, uh, the livelihoods generated from tourism or from fisheries. And then you can really think about it, um, as we have here, about a climate value and what it means um, to support the reduction of emissions and the the, the building of resilience and, and adapting to, to climate impacts today. But I think the fact that we're getting better at um, communicating those values to a range of stakeholders, there's, yeah. there is a lot to work with. One of the interesting shows we did was at EarthX a couple of years ago, Tyler, uh, and we had on the Reverend Hitchcock, I believe was his name, with Evangelicals for Environmental Protection. I'm, that is not exactly the name of the organization, but he- It's been a couple years. It's been a couple years, but you mentioned the, the way you can understand this issue and motivate or connect to people uh, economically, environmentally, and a number of different understandings of coastal protection. There is also this spiritual element, and I'm curious about this because 
it particularly in the United States, um, the evangelical community and perspective is a powerful and a potent political force. And there are organizations in the evangelical community working to help people understand stewardship from a spiritual and even biblical perspective. I'm curious, have you come across that? Have you seen that happening? Um, is that an element that you've, that you've encountered? I think that there's an important, and that's a good point to raise, there's an important intrinsic value to these places that it is often harder to put a, a, a name to or a finger on. <clears throat> but but I feel moved when I am standing in front of an ocean, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that feeling when, when they are looking out across vastness or the richness of, uh, say, a mangrove forest. I, I think there is something that happens to us um, deeply, intimately, that we might not be able to communicate um, in terms of metrics the way that we do with some of the other values, but right. that, uh, like you say, in, in a conversation, it really can permeate. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural value to mangroves, uh, particularly in the Caribbean. And may not be a spiritual connection, but there's such a, a profoundness of just going back home and, and seeing like the blue crab running in a mangrove that has really profound cultural um, implications for Trinidadians, um, just ties it back to how closely intertwined we are with nature. Yes, I agree. Um, Stacy, where can our listeners learn more about y'all's work? Um, the Pew website is a great place to start. We have um, a lot of material about our individual projects and um, not just coastal wetlands, but also some of our wider work. And that is pew.org. Is that right? Um, it's pewtrust.org pewtrust.org it's thank not quite you. that easy pewtrust.org thank you uh, before we wrap up and I'm gonna we would like to give you all closing thoughts but I have one more topic I want to ask because of your engagement internationally working in Costa Rica and Belize and the Seychelles um, one of the things I've read about in climate change uh, action is the potential rift, I don't want to say rift necessarily, or the tension between what are considered to be the contributors, the substantial contributing states to the climate problem, uh, carbon emissions. And of course, it's the major economies around the world, China, the United States, India, and others, and the affected communities, the most immediately affected and at risk, which tend to be island nations or areas in the South Pacific that are very vulnerable to increasing sea levels and the impacts of this issue. Um, Courtney, can you can you talk a little bit about how the dialogue is going uh, internationally? Boy, here's a broad question between this between the, the, the countries that are considered to be the contributors. I want to say maybe bad actors and those affected. Has this advanced and improved? Yeah, what I would say is that there has been a, a, a an emergence in, in the need to think not only about mitigating, meaning reducing greenhouse gases, but also recognizing the importance of taking action today towards um, reducing impacts from climate um, change generally to building resilience of societies 
uh, and systems against climate um, impacts that we know will happen um, because of the emissions in our atmosphere now. We know we are seeing impacts today and they are likely to get worse before they can get better. Um, but I think there's been a real uh, parity finally in terms of right. Um, mitigating versus recognizing that that it's not just about future reductions, but truly um, adapting and, and resilience building today. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think it's a big issue and a legitimate question in the process. And I've, I'm starting to see some action in terms of the, the making resources available to the immediately affected communities, kind of offsetting some of that. I think that's good, the kind of sharing of responsibility that's going to be part of the solution. Um, Stacy. closing thoughts uh, from your standpoint as the science expert at the Pew Charitable Trust on coastal wetlands and coral reefs? You know, I think we, um, we know our coastal wetlands are important. I think we are now recognizing how important they are um, in terms of their climate value. And I hope countries move towards including more nature-based solutions like the protection of coastal wetlands as part of their climate policies. Courtney. Me too. Me too. I'm open for that as well. Courtney, what about you? Closing thoughts? Yeah, just echoing Stacy's sentiments there. It's, it is time to rise to the occasion. And, and one really exceptional way to do that is is by protecting and restoring coastal wetlands they should they should absolutely be included in in ndcs and and countries should should work to 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 progress actions and 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 policies and strategies around those ecosystems um, in the years to come that's good to hear you know the largest coastal wetlands restoration project uh, i have i am told in the history of the united states if not worldwide is the Mid-Barataria Diversion Project in the Mississippi River Delta. How about that? The final EIS released this week, uh, which is going to result, they believe, in tens of thousands of acres of wetland restoration uh, by the redirection of Mississippi River sediments into the Delta that used to be pushed off the continental shelf. Uh, Anyway... Uh, such an interesting conversation. I'm so pleased to learn more about the Pew Charitable Trust and the work you guys are doing. What a high-level operation! So critical. A couple world-class wonks. That on really, the program. yeah. You get. Let me tell you, environmental protection is a deep business. You got to be smart as hell. You got to be great on the science, great on the law and policy. It's a it's a high calling, and it takes very skilled people. And agreed. You guys are fantastic. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, it's Stacy Baez, who is the officer with the Pew Charitable Trust in the Coastal Wetlands and Coral Reefs Project, and her colleague, Courtney Durham, I'm sorry, who is an officer in the International Conservation Unit of the Pew Charitable Trust. What a treat. Thank you for sharing your insights uh, and perspective with our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. Down on the road, mouth, so Oh